0: Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders. Police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes. Amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you the highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is COPPA. Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. It is lunchtime in London, 5 a.m. in Los Angeles, and 8 a.m. here in New York. It is beautiful outside,
1: perfect September day with lots of sunshine. Oh, would you look at Washington, huh?
0: I'm going outside today.
1: Other than that, it's kind of quiet around the country. We like quiet.
0: It's quiet. It's too quiet. This just in, you were looking at, a, obviously, a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Apparently, a plane has crashed
1: into the World Trade Center in New York. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That looks like a second plane. That just exploded. We I, just saw another plane coming put, in from the side. You did. I did that was out of absolutely yes, my view. Yes, and that's the second explosion. You could see the plane come in just from the right-hand side of the screen. Uh, today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country and the Pentagon is being evacuated. There is a large fire there, and that is the smoke you see in the shot that you are looking at now. It appears that an aircraft of some sort did hit the side of the Pentagon. There has just been a huge explosion. We can see uh, a billowing smoke rising. And I can't, I'll, I'll tell you that I can't see that second tower. Only
0: one tower is standing. The other has collapsed.
1: It Thanks has very completely
0: much, collapsed. The whole side has collapsed The whole there? building has collapsed. The me. whole building has collapsed? The building has collapsed.
1: And there was smoke everywhere, and people are jumping out the windows. Over there, they're jumping out the windows, I guess, because they're trying to save themselves. I don't know.
0: And there, as you can see, perhaps the second tower, the front tower, the top portion of which is
1: collapsing. Good Lord.
0: There are no words. Eighteen years ago today, on the morning of September 11th, 2001, four commercial airliners were hijacked to be used as weapons against America. 7.59 a.m. American Flight 11 takes off from Boston's Logan International Airport en route to Los Angeles. Fifteen minutes later, at 8.14, United Flight 175 also takes off from Boston headed to Los Angeles. 8.19 Air Traffic Control learns that American 11 has been hijacked. 8.20 American Flight 77 takes off from Dulles International outside Washington, D.C. destined for Los Angeles. 8.41 United Flight 93 takes off from the Newark, New Jersey airport en route to San Francisco. Terrorists carefully pre-selected these cross-country flights knowing that each was loaded with 20,000 gallons of jet fuel and with a calculated understanding of the damaging explosions and fires they would potentially create. Coordinated within minutes of each other, the planes diverted from their westbound flight plans and turned back, heading east. 8.46 a.m. American 11 was crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City, near the 90th floor of the 110-story building. 8.50 President Bush is notified of the attack while visiting an elementary school in Florida. Seventeen minutes after the North Tower impact, at 9.03, United 175 was crashed into the World Trade Center's South Tower near the 80th floor. With each impact, all the passengers and crew, and hundreds within the Twin Tower skyscrapers, are instantly killed. Hundreds more are trapped and injured. 9.31 a.m., speaking from Florida, President Bush announces the events in New York as an apparent terrorist attack on our country. Six minutes later, at 9.37, American 77 was crashed into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. 9.42 a.m. For the first time in history, the Federal Aviation Administration grounds all flights over or inbound to the continental United States. 3,300 commercial flights and 1,200 private planes are forced to land at airports in the United States and Canada. People trapped in the towers, facing unimaginable heat and realizing they cannot be saved, begin to leap to their deaths from 100 stories above the streets. Behind the structural damage and fire, 56 minutes after the impact, at 9.59, the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapses. 10.07 a.m. Now aware of the attacks in New York and Washington, and believing their plane has been hijacked, passengers aboard United 93 tape flight magazines on their forearms as protection against the terrorists' box cutter knives. Flight attendants boil water in the plane's galley to be used to disable their hijackers. Together, they mount an attempt to retake the plane. They forced United 93 to crash into a field outside Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Its suspected target was the White House. 1028 a.m. 102 minutes after being struck the World Trade Center's North Tower collapsed. 343 firefighters died that day in addition to countless more police and civilians attempting to rescue those stranded and treat those injured. From the ashes and rubble a hero emerged, a voice saved that would later speak to honor and remember. The pain and heartbreak you will hear in that voice belongs to Tim Brown. He was a New York City fireman, a proud example of his department's slogan simply, New York's Bravest. Timmy was there that day, assigned to Mayor Rudy Giuliani's emergency preparedness staff, but not merely as a witness, rather as a participant, as a rescuer, inside the World Trade Center, working to save lives when the towers came down. Tim is one of the very, very few to survive.
1: There was no humidity. It was cool. It was just kind of a perfect New York, New England day on the East Coast. I was actually sitting in the third floor cafeteria, eating my Cheerios and reading the newspapers because we didn't have cell phones back then or smartphones. And... Uh, uh, so when the, when the power went out, the people, all the people who were sitting in the cafeteria with me, but they were, they were at the windows, like all at once they all jumped up and started running to the exit, running by me and, and kind of panicking and screaming. And I had to grab one girl by the shoulders and stop her and say, what happened? And she said, a plane hit the tower. And that's the first I became
0: aware of what had happened. Tim struggled upward against a flood of people who were using a granite set of stairs to flee the building. Those stairs were the only pathway to escape for thousands of people. After the dust settled, those stairs were the last remaining visible structure following the building's collapse. They are now known as the Survivor's Staircase, a part of the 9-11 Memorial Museum. Tim was inspired by what he witnessed from that stairway.
1: So I ran up that staircase very early on, I ran along the side of of the north tower which is the first one that was hit and I looked out over the plaza and it was littered with debris and that's really when I started to say it wasn't a Cessna and there's something bigger going on here because all of the flaming debris scattered in the plaza, in the smoke, and the smell. And if people remember the video, videos from that day, all the papers from the offices that were fluttering down onto the plaza, and that's exactly what I saw. And I noticed something, Jay, in, in, in that moment, I, I just noticed what people were not doing. They were not pushing, screaming, kicking, stampeding each other. In fact, it was just the opposite of that. For every person who was obese, pregnant, disabled, injured, there were four or five office workers, not firemen or policemen, office workers, who were helping that person and i said just quick, like in a flash in my mind i said no matter what happens today we're going to be okay because that's the true spirit of humanity
0: tim arrived at a location loaded with hundreds of firemen dressed in their fire protection gear lugging heavy equipment and preparing to begin the long vertical climb up 90 stories to rescue victims and battle the flames
1: and as i was going down i looked out over the lobby of the north tower and it was loaded with firemen and in this moment i realized why the cops called us bumblebees because when we all get together like that hundreds of us and we have those yellow stripes on our coats we look like bumblebees and i kind of got a little chuckle out of it
0: tim speaks to the special bond he held with firefighter chris blackwell
1: i got to the bottom of the escalator and right in front of me was one of the bumblebees One of my very good friends, Chris Black, firefighter, Chris Blackwell, and Chris and I had worked in rescue three in the Bronx for six years and not only in the same firehouse, but on the same shift. So I truly loved this man. Like he was my brother. And you know, we were Bronx Harlem firemen. We weren't the Manhattan guys, right? The Manhattan guys wear the right uniform and their, their turnout coats are clean. And we were the Bronx Harlem guys. We didn't shave. We didn't really follow the rules like everybody else did. Our turnout gear was tattered and torn and all burned up from all the fires we went to. And so this is what the, this is the person I saw in front of me, firefighter, Chris Blackwell. Bronx Harlem fireman. And not only that, but when he was in Connecticut, when he went home to Connecticut, he was a paramedic. And all Chris did with his life was help people. Anytime we had a, a, a patient, a victim from a bad fire, from an auto accident, especially if they were children, we would always look to put that person in Chris's hands because we knew in his hands, they had the best chance at life. So Chris and I had a ritual every time we saw each other. We'd come face to face, we would stand up at attention. He always had the unlit stub of a cigar in his mouth, unshaven, right? He would, we would stand right in front of each other, come to attention. He would reach up with his right hand. He would take the stub of the cigar out of his mouth. We would both lean into each other. We would kiss on the lips. We would straighten back up and he would put the stub of the cigar back in his mouth. And that's what we did every time. And it totally weirded out all the firemen. And we thought it was very funny when you've done the things together that we've done right, Jay, with, with men. That's okay. If if Chris was laying on the floor of of a fire unconscious and he wasn't breathing, I I would be on his mouth breathing for him in in a heartbeat to, to save his life. He would have done the same for me. And that's the deep brotherhood that I have been so... Blessed in my life to be a part of. And this was this deep love that Chris and I had for each other was playing out in the lobby of the North Tower on September 11, 2001. And we kissed on the lips. He put the cigar back in his mouth. We straightened back up. And Chris said to me, Timmy, this is really bad. And that's, that's between two rescue firemen who've been in a lot of bad shit together. And so when he says that to me, it means something. And I said, I know Chris, be careful. I love you, brother. And he said, I love you too. And what did he do, Jay? He turned around, he went in that stairwell and he went up to help people he didn't know. He knew it, he said to me, Timmy, this is really bad. And he still went in that stairwell, and he still went up to help
0: people he didn't know. Tim then crossed paths with his best friend, Terry Hatton, the boss of the NYFD Rescue One unit, where they said their final goodbye.
1: I heard someone yell my name across the the bumblebees. And I turned and looked. He yelled, Timmy! And I turned and looked, and it was my best friend, Terry Hatton, the captain of Rescue One. So not only was Terry in Rescue One the elite special operations of the Manhattan Fire Department, but he was the boss of it. He was the captain. He was in charge of the whole unit. And that's because Terry was that good. He was a courageous, brave fireman with uh, the intestinal fortitude more than most other firemen. He also was that guy who was really smart. So he was four or five steps in his mind. He was always ahead of everybody else. He was always considering what's happening if I do this, this and this, and this is gonna happen. And that's why the fire department picked Terry to be the captain of Rescue One. He was on the path to one day being, becoming the chief of the New York City Fire Department. And I ran over to my best friend, Terry, who I spent every day with. And he was 6'4". And with his helmet and boots on, he was six, seven, six, eight. And I ran over to my best friend and he had the Halligan in his right hand, a big metal pry bar that we carry. And he wrapped his arms, his big arms around me. And he squeezed me too tight to his chest, like tight. And he kissed me on my right cheek. And he said, I love you, brother. I may never see you again. We had done the 1993 bombing together of the world trade center together. We had climbed through the rubble of the Oklahoma city bombing within 24 hours of the bombing. We did that together. We were at the Atlanta Olympics when the bomb went off. We were there together. We went to fires and building collapses and uh, a lot of stuff that we had no, sometimes no business coming back. Oh, hi from, but we did it Yeah, and we did this stuff together. So when Terry said to me, I may never see you again, I kind of blew it off. I was like, yeah, 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 but remember Terry was the smart one and he was thinking steps ahead. I love you, brother. I may never see you again. And then what did Terry do? He turned around. He grabbed his men, and he went in the stairwell to save the lives of people they didn't know. They knew it.
0: They still did it. When the South Tower was hit, Tim knew that any remaining suspicion of the event being an accident was now gone.
1: A fireman came running into the lobby of the North Tower yelling, the South Tower just got hit. And that's the first that I became aware of it. And of course, everyone knows now that this is intentional and we're under attack.
0: Tim and Assistant Chief Donald Burns, a veteran firefighter with 41 years of service under his belt, were assigned to begin rescues in the South Tower.
1: The leadership huddled up and decided how to split our forces And it was decided that myself and Chief Donald Burns, Assistant Chief of the New York Fire Department, 41 years in the New York City Fire Department, one of the most respected uh, fire chiefs in the FDNY, we were assigned to the South Tower. Chief Burns was my friend for a long, long time. And we're hustling over to the South Tower And we had a conversation now, now Chief Burns, if you, if you saw, um, if you looked up in the dictionary, Irish fire chief, it would be his mug with the red, rosy cheeks, the lines of knowledge and experience in his face. He was another big guy, six, three, six, four. And he was my friend. And I said, chief, what do you need me to do? And he talked with a thicker New York accent and he talked quick out of the side of the right side of his mouth. And he said, Timmy, there's not much you and I can do. I've ordered a fifth alarm, another 350 firefighters, but the first five alarms are going to the North tower. We're going to have to wait for ours. So it's you and me, do your best and be careful. I saluted him. I said, yes, sir. Chief.
0: Tim's first attempt at rescue was to help people trapped in a stalled elevator. His experience shared with firefighter Michael Lynch is routine for our firemen and EMS servants and a demonstration of the phrase that what has once been seen can never be unseen.
1: With that a woman came running over to us screaming that people were trapped in the elevator. So Chief Burns gave me the nod, go. He went, Chief Burns went to the command post. I followed the woman. She took me to the elevator banks in the South Tower. And one of the elevator cars, the hoistway doors were open so you could see into the shaft. But the elevator car had not come down all the way. So at the top of the opening, you could see into the elevator car all the people's feet who were trapped in the elevator. And I remember the men's shirt sleeves and jackets as they were trying to pull the car down more because there wasn't enough room for them to get out. And they were screaming in pain. And I didn't know it at the time, but that elevator car had free-fallen 70 floors because the plane snapped the cable when it came in. So they had just taken the 70-story free fall. But the elevator emergency brakes worked the way they were supposed to and stopped the car from smashing into the concrete pit. But now those brakes were locked onto the car and they couldn't move it. And they were screaming in pain, Jay, because the elevator pit below them was full of jet fuel that was on fire and they were getting burned. After they had taken this free fall, their lives were saved, but now they were getting burned. And here's the big hero fireman, Tim, right? Completely useless with his mayor's office jacket. Because I had nothing, I had no tools and equipment to save them i turned and looked to see if I could see anything to help. And I yelled at the employees, start bringing me fire extinguishers. We'll try to fight this fire and save these people. And we tried to put the fire out, but of course it's a fuel fire. You're not putting it out. And in my frustration, I turned again to see if I could see anything or anyone to help these poor people. And my shoulder hit a person that was, had come up behind me and I looked over and it was a bumblebee and I looked up at the bumblebee's face and it was firefighter Michael Lynch from ladder four, who I had worked with in 90, And Mike, Michael put his hand on my shoulder and said, Timmy, I got it. Three words between firemen who had worked together. He saw the situation in front of him. He understood the panic in my face for these poor people. But Mike had brought, right, his training, his experience, his tools and equipment, because he brought a whole fire truck with him, and his intestinal fortitude to save the lives of those people. He was actually a fireman on that day. And those, when Mike said those three words, I later told his widow Denise because I wanted her to hear it from me. When Mike said, Timmy, I got it, he may as well have had wings coming out of his back because he was the angel sent to save the lives of those poor people.
0: As Tim scrambled to save lives, he got notification of a third hijacked plane heading their way. He urgently tried to warn others of the incoming threat. U.S. military jets had been scrambled with the real possibility that their pilots would have to destroy a civilian passenger plane. It had not yet been declared, but America was at war.
1: Over my radio, we got uh, urgent, urgent, urgent. Third plane incoming, it's confirmed by the FBI. Impact imminent, take cover, get in the stairwells. I said, Mike, I gotta go, you got this. And I left that kind of scene in Mike's hands, Mike's capable hands. I ran to the command post. I picked up a landline and I dialed zero for operator. And she picked up right away and I said, I'm with Mayor Giuliani in the, in the World Trade Center. I need to talk to the White House immediately. And she tried to get through to the White House for me and she couldn't get through. She came back on and I said, I need to talk to the Pentagon then. And she said, the Pentagon is under attack. And that's the first time we became aware of that. I talked to New York State Emergency Management Office and they assured me that the fighter jets were coming for us, coming to protect us as fast as they could.
0: Tim frantically tried to help those injured. He stepped outside and saw a scene that, again, no one should ever have to experience.
1: The lobby of the South Tower was filling up with people who were very badly injured who had come down the stairwell. 70 80 floors around and around and around and around all the way down when they got to the lobby they mistakenly thought that they were safe and so we had all these injured people laying all over the lobby and we knew they were not safe for so many reasons and they were impacting our evacuation so Chief Burns said to me, Timmy, go get the paramedics in here and start getting these people out of here. And that's why I left the South Tower lobby. I ran out on Liberty Street. And the first thing I saw, Jay, and it's burned into my visual memory, I can see it right there in the street in front of me was a dead fireman who had been struck by someone who jumped or fell from the upper floors. It was a woman, the upper floors of the tower. She landed on firefighter Danny Sir from from uh, engine 216. And it had just happened right, right before I ran out there. It had just happened. And his buddies, his colleagues, his company were running with him and he's the one that got struck. And they leaned down to try and like, pull him out of harm's way but it was not a scene that any human should have to experience in in any form or fashion you shouldn't see it you shouldn't uh uh you know have been there It, it just happened right there
0: tim and his team while trying to make rescues became trapped victims themselves as the towers collapsed
1: I kept running. I made it over to West Street under the South Pedestrian Bridge where the paramedics were. I got three paramedics there from their Special Operations Command, including my friend, Captain Charlie Wells. And I said, we need to get you guys into the lobby to start getting these people out of there. So we grabbed their stretcher and I call it all their doctor equipment because I don't really get all that stuff. And the four of us, ran back to go into Tower 2, the South Tower. We were about 20 feet from the door of, of going over the threshold into the tower when it collapsed. And first, it was a really loud crack, like, like lightning struck right next to you. It was so loud that it reverberated through the canyons of lower Manhattan. And then right after that crack, it was progressive collapse, each floor collapsing down on the next one, because it couldn't hold the weight of the upper floors of the building. So it was like, boom, 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 boom. And to us, it was obvious what was happening. And we're trained as firefighters, you cannot outrun a collapse. You have to seek immediate cover. And so I yelled to the paramedics, follow me. And we ran into the lobby of the Marriott hotel, which was uh, attached to adjoining the South tower and the doors we ran into was the tall ship's Restaurant. We ran in there. It was as clear as the day was. And with the snap of your fingers, it went pitch black. Tower 2 was collapsing onto the Marriott Hotel and the Marriott Hotel was collapsing around us. It went pitch black like that. I hit the floor. Everything that wasn't nailed down was blowing in our faces.
0: In desperation, Tim reacted with a firefighter's calm, relying on his training and experience to give him the best chance, his only chance at survival.
1: The only chance I had at living was to find a vertical column because that's the strongest part of the building. And I crawled as fast as I could. I found this big column and I wrapped my arms around it. You couldn't breathe. You couldn't see. The wind lifted my legs up and tried to blow me back out into the street. And I knew if I let go of this column, I was certainly a dead man. I was probably a dead man anyhow. But the only chance I had at life was to hold on to this column. And the noise, Jay, I can only describe it as being sitting on the tarmac of JFK airport surrounded by 747s full blast. And you're just sitting there in the middle of it the wind it turns out was scientifically proven later because they studied the space where we survived was 185 miles an hour as the building was collapsing and the air was being pushed out of the building and you know it lasted less than 30 the whole thing lasted less than 30 seconds but in those 30 seconds i thought i was dead
0: facing his own imminent death Tim's thoughts turned to his family
1: I I remember thinking how angry I was and how unfair it was that I wouldn't be able to hold my family one more time and I just waited to get crushed there was there was nothing I could do and then again with the snap of the fingers it just stopped the wind stopped the noise stopped. I was alive, but I couldn't breathe, and I was trying to stick my face in my shirt.
0: There is no earthly explanation for how Tim survived. Realizing that a personal miracle had taken place, as our firemen routinely do, Tim immediately ignored his own safety and returned to his duty, focused on helping others when he found a group of people trapped and perilously teetering on the edge of a cavern created by the collapse.
1: I went back to the, where the doors had been, where we uh, had come into the, this Tall Ships restaurant. But of course, every, the landscape was changed because everything collapsed. And I came to a metal roll-down gate that was down. And I put my fingers under it to start lifting it up. And I lifted it up a couple inches, and all these fingers came from the other side of it. And we lifted this gate up and it was a bunch of firemen and civilians who had been evacuating uh, the building and they were trapped on the other side of this metal roll down gate behind them they, they were standing on a ledge that was probably only three or four feet wide and behind them is where the collapse went through the lobby and it was about seven stories down and so they were trapped between this metal roll down gate and seven stories down. Half of the guys they were with, half of the civilians they were saving, were killed in this collapse. And I I, I said, we have to go that way. They said, there is no that way. It's seven stories down. It's, you know, we have to go back the other way where you came from. And so we all turned around and started going back through that tall ship's restaurant area and a, a, a fireman came from the outside with a really bright flashlight and he was screaming to us to, to follow him, to go that way. And we all followed him and, and that's just kind of the end of the story of my survival.
0: The survivors of the Twin Towers collapse were few.
1: There were about 35 of us who lived in, in that one kind of cocoon of, of life in the Marriott Tall Ships restaurant lobby. Um, We were very, very lucky and blessed because very few people were in the collapse who lived. Um, The destruction and devastation was so complete that it killed almost anyone that was there in the buildings or near the buildings. It killed everybody. There were very few who lived. And I am grateful and blessed. And despite the fact that I lost about 100 friends, I think life is beautiful and wonderful.
0: Tim reflects on his faith and how through the events of this tragic day, God revealed to him his life's purpose.
1: I am a faithful guy. I'm I'm a private, personal, faithful guy. Uh, And God reveals his plan and his path for you in his time, not in your time. And it took me a, a long time. I mean, we're 18 years later now. I didn't understand what my role, what, what he chose me for. Why did I live right? The survivor's guilt. Why why did, why was Terry killed? Why was Chris killed? Why was Mike killed? Why was Patty Brown killed? Why were all my friends uh, really murdered? And why did I survive? Why? And I don't say that, I was never a guy who would ever consider suicide. And my my family and my best friends who were still alive were very concerned about that in the first year or two. I was never that guy, but I was also a very angry, very hurt guy. But like more, like for 10 years, I call myself angry Tim. I was angry for 10 years and it's not till the last five or six years that I really realized what the purpose of me living is and the purpose of me living, what he wants me to do is be one of the voices in our mantra, never forget and to make sure that people don't forget to make sure, um, America doesn't forget to make sure the world doesn't forget the heroism of all these firefighters and police officers, nearly nearly 450 first responders who voluntarily stepped forward to fulfill their oath, the greatest gift to humanity is someone who will give up their life for someone they don't know. And they need to be remembered, their names need to be remembered, Uh, their lives need to be remembered, their families need to be remembered. The heroism of what they did that day needs to be never forgotten. The stories of kissing Chris and him saying to me, to me, this is really bad. And he still went in that stairwell. The story of Terry Hatton saying, I may never see you again. And he still went in the stairwell. My ever best friend, Captain Patty Brown united states marine sergeant in vietnam the highest decorated new york city fireman to be murdered on september 11th he had so many medals on his uniform that he would intentionally leave them home in his drawer because he didn't want to embarrass the other firemen patty brown was running up the stairs of the north tower i I just heard a new story about him last week from uh, captain j jonas who heard Patty on the radio, after he was directly ordered by the chief to evacuate the building, he came back on the radio and he said, this is Captain Brown, ladder three. I am refusing your order. We are with many burned people and we are not gonna leave them. Jay actually heard Patrick say that over the radio. These stories need to be spoken out loud, they need to be uh, um, recorded, they need to be uh, honored. And the goodness and the love that they demonstrated that day was the beginning of overcoming the evil of that day.
0: Tim and his partners, alive and passed on all of them, have provided us a true demonstration of selfless courage, charging into danger, not away from it.
1: I am not worthy of this honor. And I I hope that I can live up to what he is asking me to do. I I, I feel like I'm on my knees before him Hoping that I've done a good job.
0: Timmy, trust me when you hear this, you've gone far beyond a good job. Tim Brown's story is featured in the award winning documentary Rebirth, which tracks the healing process of individuals who suffered personal loss in the 9 11 attacks. He is a leading advocate for 9 11 survivors, those in the fire services, his beloved New York's bravest, the New York City Fire Department, and everyone in the public service professions. Tim is a highly sought keynote speaker, encouraging his audiences with firsthand stories that demonstrate the resiliency of the human spirit and further inspiring hope in all of us. Let us never forget the heroes and victims of September 11th, 2001. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless, and go be amazing.